Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week, I want to talk about the MGM studio lot, the iconic MGM lot. Now, I have done this uh, before in a couple of previous podcasts, talking about the studio lots where my partner David Isaacs and I had offices at one time or another in our checkered career. And so today I want to turn to MGM. We had done Paramount and 20th Century Fox in the past. You can go back through the archives and find those if you like. But uh, we did spend some time at MGM, and I also have some really cool stories, including one about watching Billy Wilder direct. So that's this week on Hollywood and Levine. It's actually Culver City and Levine uh, today because that's where the MGM studio lot was. It was probably about 10 miles from, quote-unquote, Hollywood. But most of the Hollywood studios were not actually in Hollywood. Paramount was, but Warner Brothers was in the Valley and Universal was in the Valley. And like I said, in Culver City was MGM. A little history to start. It was founded in 1912. No, I was not there for that. I think Clint Eastwood was. MGM owned it from 1924 to 1986, and then they sold it to Sony, and I believe Sony still owns it to this day. Now it's just called the Culver Studios, but of course, back in those days, it was MGM. We sold uh, the movie Volunteers, to MGM, which was really cool, being able to walk onto that lot. Uh, that was back in like 1980 or 81. That movie had gone through a number of producers, turnaround. Uh, it finally wound up at HBO Silver Screen, but not before, like I said, it took the tour of studio lots, and one of them was at uh, MGM, and it was always very cool to be able to walk onto the MGM lot because so much of it was preserved from the old days, from its uh, original days. There were not a lot of 
big skyscrapers. I mean, if you go to the 20th Century Fox lot now, you wouldn't recognize it from 30, 40 years ago. There's like brand new buildings. There are giant parking structures. Uh, A lot of the charm is gone. A lot of the old standing sets have long since been taken down. So it, it doesn't nearly have the magic it once did. And Back in the 80s and 90s, certainly the MGM lot still retained uh, a lot of that charm because there were all those old buildings. And just like at Paramount, the buildings were named after stars. So there would be the Garland building and the Rooney building and the Gable building, that that sort of thing. Um, Let's see. We went there in 1976. It was really the first time that we had a chance to go onto the lot because we got an assignment to write an episode of a show called The Practice. Now, this is not the show that you might remember from probably 15, 20 years ago, the David E. Kelly show about a law firm. No, this was a show that starred Danny Thomas And he was a crusty doctor. You see the show Becker, very similar to The Practice. And uh, we got an assignment. So, again, we got to go on to the lot a couple of times, which is really cool. And we also met the creator of the show, who then just became a consultant after being a showrunner for the first 13. Uh, But his name was Steve Gordon. And I've talked about Steve Gordon quite a bit. He was brilliant, brilliant writer and director. Ever see the movie Arthur? That's the movie that he wrote and directed. He had a heart attack and died in his late 40s, which was truly a tragedy. But it was great to to meet him. And I'll tell you one story about the practice. So we, we turn in the first draft. And by now, Steve Gordon is commuting back and forth between his home in New York and Los Angeles. So he wasn't in the meeting for our second draft notes. And it was uh, Tony Thomas and Paul Witt. And let's just say they hated our draft. (laughs) They just hated our draft. I mean, we just got buried in notes And uh, I accidentally, when it was over, uh, picked up Tony's copy of the script. And so when I got home and I'm looking at his notes and he's got lines through everything and big X's and things like lunch bit sucks is one thing I distinctly remember that he had written down. So, uh, okay, we licked our wounds and we're going to do our second draft. And uh, I get a call from Steve Gordon. And Steve says, hey, guys, I I read your script. And so I said, okay, you know, you give us your notes, just pile on. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, Paul and Tony just hated it. And he goes, are you kidding? This is the best first draft I've ever seen. I, I would shoot this as is. Don't make any changes. Are you kidding? I'll talk to them. But don't make any changes. So, uh, so we didn't. And, um, and we turned it in and we were very proud and very happy. And, uh, when we turned it in, 
one of the producers was just sitting in the lobby chatting with the receptionist. This was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Back in those days, you didn't just email scripts. You had to bring a hard copy of a script into the office of the producer and, and then leave. So here it was, 2 in the afternoon, and this guy is just you know, hanging out with the receptionist chatting. I gave him the script, and he goes, okay, great. Thank you, guys. And I walked out, and I thought, you know, there's no activity that guy should be really busy. What's going on here? And I said to David, um, I bet they've been canceled. <laughs> this just feels like they've given up. Sure enough, next day, we get a call from our agent saying the show is canceled. They'll pay us. But obviously, the show uh, will not be filmed, at least our script will not be filmed, uh, but it did allow me to uh, establish a relationship with Steve Gordon, something that I have cherished. Then in 1980, David and I got a deal to work at Lorimar. And Lorimar, at the time, God bless him, was at MGM. So we got an office on the MGM lot, and I forget which star uh, whose name was on the building. Uh, might have been Gable, but I do remember that we were the floor right above Bo Derek. So we would see Bo Derek, and uh, this was a time I got to tell you when you saw a lot more stars, a lot more legitimate stars. Uh, on a Hollywood lot than you do now. And, um, oh, another thing I should mention, I'm bouncing around a little bit, but this goes to the history of MGM. They're the studio that had Judy Garland as a little girl. And they also had uh, a lot of success with children starring in movies, notably the Andy Hardy series with Mickey Rooney. And there were any number of children who were part of the MGM quote-unquote studio players. And they would all meet and go to school in the same schoolhouse on the lot, and they would all be in different movies. Judy Garland, as I mentioned, was one. Jackie Cooper was another. Mickey Rooney. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Gene Reynolds. And Gene Reynolds, who appeared in various movies back in the 30s and 40s, later went on to become a director and a producer and writer. And it was Gene Reynolds who was one of the creators and showrunners of MASH. And Gene hired me and David. We got our big break from Gene Reynolds, and he, he, was, he was amazing. We learned more about story construction and writing from Gene Reynolds than anybody else. And uh, Gene remained a, a close friend. He passed away last year 
in his early 90s, but prior to his death, he was really sharp, and once or twice a year, uh, I would go to lunch with him at Musso and Frank's, and oh my God, the stories that he had about those days of being at MGM and all of the stars and all of the movies and uh, what it was like to just hang out with Judy Garland, who, by the way, he said was an absolute sweetheart. And it was, you know, the studio that forced her to take pills and forced her to be thin and turned her into what she ultimately became. But going to the commissary at MGM was always a treat because, again, you would see a lot of stars. And one thing I remember about the commissary back then is during Passover, the Jewish season of Passover, there was always matzah on every table. (laughs) this, This was a Jewish lot here, folks. So one time I'm in the commissary and... I see Natalie Wood come in. She was making her last movie, Brainstorm. So, unfortunately, this was like maybe a month or two before her untimely death. But I did get to see Natalie Wood. Billy Wilder was getting ready to make his last movie, Buddy Buddy, at MGM. And so I would see Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond, his writing partner, come in just about every day. You talk about Hollywood royalty. Oh, my God. So there's Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond. And there was another movie that was being filmed on the lot. I think it's called Rich and Famous. But that was directed by George Kukar. Again, another icon, you know, someone on the Mount Rushmore of movie directors from that era, George Kukar, was directing a movie, and that starred the very young and beautiful Candace Bergen and the very young and even more beautiful Jacqueline Bissett. You know how there are some people that they just walk into a room and they have this incredible radiance that every head in the room just like automatically, you know, just whipsaw just turns and has to see, uh, has to partake of this radiance and beauty. And that was Jacqueline Bissett. She absolutely, back in those days, um, just took your heart away. And then I went and finally saw the movie and it was like, eh. They were filming all of the Lorimar shows back then. And at that time, Lorimar was doing very well in television because of a little show called Dallas. The nighttime soap opera Dallas was filmed there, so you get to see J.R., Larry Hagman, all the time. And uh, the other nighttime soaps that uh, Lorimar also uh, churned out, like Knott's Landing, and there was one, God, I forget the title of it, but it had a very young Linda Hamilton before she buffed up and can beat the crap out of me. But I remember having a big crush on her back in those days. 
One Friday afternoon, I had nothing to do. It was nothing to write. David had already gone home, and I was about to go home, and I thought, hmm, maybe, just maybe, I could sneak onto the set of Buddy Buddy and see Billy Wilder in action directing. So I knew which stage they were using for that, and I decided to just kind of wander over. I figured, what's the worst that could happen? They'd throw my ass out. I walked in, and nobody stopped me. The door to the soundstage was open. And when I came upon the area in which they were shooting, and Billy Wilder was just sitting off to the side doing nothing. So I approached, and I introduced myself, and I mentioned that I had worked on MASH for a few years, which I figure is kind of a nice icebreaker. Well, MASH happened to be like his favorite show, so he was actually very pleased to meet me and invited me to sit down and join him. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is surreal. I'm sitting next to Billy Wilder as he's about to direct a scene. And we're chatting for about uh, 10 minutes or so. And uh, the scene they were about to shoot was one where Jack Lemmon was tied to a chair and he was supposed to shimmy up to a heating vent that was on a wall. And with his knee, he was supposed to click on the heating vent. And then the filaments would glow. And he would uh, maneuver the rope that was binding his foot to be burned off by the filament and that's how he would get out of that predicament okay so uh so wilder explains this to a couple of production people and someone from one of the crews comes up to him and goes well mr wilder sir um that's not the way those heating units work uh you see when you turn on one of those heating units, it generally takes the filaments about uh, 30 seconds to warm up until they finally glow. They don't just automatically go on and glow. And Billy Wilder goes, Young man, we are making movie magic here. Do you ever notice that there is always a parking space right in front? That when the couple are eating at a restaurant, it is always at a table with a view. And so, of course, the <laughs> the construction guy was, like, reduced to rubble, and, uh, well, yes, sir, is, we'll, we'll, we'll make it glow. Thank you. Uh, so that was, that was amazing, and I watched the scene and got a chance to meet uh, Jack Lemon, and he also had some suggestions for Billy Wilder, and Wilder nodded and listened patiently, and uh, when he left, uh, Wilder turned to me and and said, uh, Mr. Lemon was very, very creative, very creative. No, I'm not going to do any of those. (laughs) But in other movies, uh, he did take 
lemon suggestion here and there. So that was my day actually meeting Billy Wilder. Unfortunately, the movie was terrible, but still, it's, it's a Billy Wilder movie that I got to see. How many of you are familiar with the old Superman TV series from the 1950s, The Adventures of Superman with George Reeves as Superman? Well, the woman who played Lois Lane in all but the first season of that show was named Noelle Neal. And she was really hot back then. You know, I'm nine years old and I had a crush. But uh, in later years, she left acting. And by the time we were at the MGM lot in the early 80s, Noel Neal was a secretary at Lorimar. And we used to see her all the time. And she had uh, her hair, it was gray then, and it was pulled back into a ponytail. But there was Lois Lane every day on the lot. That was really cool. They have a New York street at MGM, and you've seen it in hundreds, maybe thousands of movies and TV shows. Uh, The Man from UNCLE used it all the time. The Twilight Zone used it all the time. The Twilight Zone was filmed at MGM. So was The Man from UNCLE. And a show that I have mentioned a couple of times on this podcast and had great cinematography and a cool look, Peter Gunn from the 50s was also filmed in uh, MGM's lot. And uh, that show was set in New York and they used the New York street quite a bit. I directed... One of my earliest directing assignments, this was like the late 90s. It was a show for the fledgling Fox network called Ask Harriet. It was a terrible show, just a terrible show. But it had some pretty good people in the cast. Willie Garson uh, was in that cast. He went on to, I think, do Sex in the City and uh, quite a few things. Um, Julie Benz was in that cast. She went on to do Dexter. And um, Tony Quinn, not to be confused with Anthony Quinn, but he was the the star of the show, and he was on Saved by the Bell, I think, prior to that. So we really had some good people uh, in front of the camera, but the scripts were just terrible, and I got a chance to direct a a few of those. I have to say, I will be honest, I have to say that my professional experience at MGM was not all that great. We were at Lorimar, we wrote a lot of pilots, we didn't get things made. There was a lot of frustration. We write an episode for the practice, it doesn't air. We, uh, I direct a couple of episodes of of a series that uh, mercifully was canceled after probably four episodes. Um, so I don't have the fondest memories of being on the MGM lot. When Jim Brooks, who created The Simpsons and then wrote, directed, and produced um, Terms of Endearment, 
also broadcast news and became just one of the absolute kings of Hollywood, then did a little TV show called The Simpsons. Well, his production company, Gracie Films, you've seen Gracie Films at the end of every Simpsons episode. Well, he got a big deal at MGM or Sony by that time. And every year he would have a Christmas party. And when he originally had a Christmas party, this was back when he was still at 20th Century Fox. And a lot of the Simpsons offices, I think, are still at 20th Century Fox. But he would be able to hold his party in the very nice bungalow that was his office. And then when he moved to MGM... Even though if it's Sony, I'm still calling it MGM. But even when he moved across to that lot, well, he decided to expand because he was now into more movies and had other things going on. And so the party, instead of just being in an office, was on like a, a block of the lot that they had cordoned off. And they brought in fake snow for the kids and that sort of thing. And this party just kept growing year to year to year. And finally, after about six or seven years, the party pretty much took over half the studio lot. It was unbelievable. I mean, at first party, the guest list was maybe 50 people. By the end, it was a 1,000. <laughs> I mean, everyone from Hollywood was there, and you brought your kids, and there was tons of food. The commissary was open, and there were food carts everywhere. It was this giant party, and there were fortune tellers, and there were arts and crafts rooms. I remember one year uh, being with my daughter, Annie, who was quite young at the time, and uh, we were making crafts with Carrie Fisher. <laughs> it's like that kind of that kind of world, and I always wonder for my kids and the other children who were lucky enough to attend these parties what they thought. You know, looking back, I mean, to them was it like, oh, okay, this is like a cool party, or did they think? Oh my God, this is unfucking believable. Um, probably not, but I never went to a party like that when I was a kid, and I imagine you didn't either. And I think Jim had a couple of bomb movies, and that was the end of, of the Gracie parties. But you know, you'd see Harrison Ford and Nick Nolte, and uh, they'd all be hanging out with the kids. Uh, my last dealing with MGM was Robin Schiff and I, and Robin, who, of course, did um, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion and was a guest uh, the first year on this podcast, if you'd like to go back and check that out. But Robin and I wrote a spec screenplay together that we sold to MGM. But by then, MGM didn't have a dedicated lot they were actually in a high rise in century city 
and nothing happened other than us getting paid in terms of the movie, yet another great MGM experience. But uh, hey, the money came in real handy. So what are they doing now at MGM? Well, this is where they tape Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, which is nice, except it ain't the Wizard of Oz. It ain't the Thin Man. Uh, They also do Shark Tank there and have done any number of television series, like I said, Man from Uncle, Twilight Zone, Peter Gunn. But uh, in terms of sitcoms, they were the home of King of Queens and also Married with Children and currently The Goldbergs. And a couple of uh, drama shows, Party of Five was done there, Insecure is done there, as was Ray Donovan. So that is uh, a brief look at the MGM studio. As always, our thanks go to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolford, to Bruce and Jason Miller. If you have uh, any comments about this podcast or anything, you can always email me, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine. Also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Subscribe if you haven't already. Always use a five star review. Again, thanks so much for listening. I will talk to you next week. Hollywood and the Fine.